Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. morning guys and girls men and women um i'm mike i'm a pastor here i'm really hungry right now and i gotta do this in front of two delicious loaves of bread so this is uh it's gonna be good if i don't make eye contact with you i'll probably be making eye contact with the loaf so my apologies I wanted to clear this out because I, I wanted to make sure this side gets some love. I, I tend to walk this way for some reason. So if I'm forgetting you, just wave and I'll try to come back. Thanks. Um, hey, today we're, we're, we're diving into a new series, a seven-week series in the book of Exodus. So from now into Easter, until Easter, we want to move as a church through what is an incredible story of God rescuing people from slavery and ushering them into what is called a promised land land, a spacious land of their own where they can live free. And this is one of those stories, if you spent any time around the church, you know. And in fact, if you're new to the church, you probably have some understanding of this story because there's been a handful of movies made with a guy named Moses confronting Pharaoh with, let my people go, right? Is that ringing some bells? Ten Commandments, Prince of Egypt. But even beyond that, this story is so rich and resonates so deeply in us as humans that you can find versions of the story everywhere. You know, poor, helpless people are in trouble. There's a mean, evil ruler that's oppressing them. An unlikely hero uh, steps in to save the day, and after a big struggle, they're miraculously saved, right? You're probably thinking of some of your favorite movies, like Speed with Sandra Bullock, probably coming to mind, right? That came to mind. Um, this is the kind of story we love as humans, right? It's written on us. We, we love this kind of story. But for me, maybe the most profound thing about the story we're about to get into with Exodus is that it's a picture of what God, the God of the Bible, is still doing today. He's still redeeming us. He's still rescuing us. And, it, it, and it's not Moses that's the hero for us, and we're not heading to some coordinates on a map called the Promised Land. It's Jesus who's the hero And he's redeeming us and saving us into God's presence. God is our promised land. He's still doing it today. So these next seven weeks, we'll be zooming in on the book of Exodus. And we only have seven weeks, and it's a big book, so we'll be hitting the highlights. So don't expect this to be an exhaustive study of the whole book of Exodus. We'll be zooming in on a few stories and then trying to zoom out so that we can get a a picture of maybe what God is doing today through Jesus in our lives And to help you from getting too dizzy from all the zooming in, zooming out, Old Testament, 2013, you know, we we, we need to have a focus. And something to help us in our focus is what you were given today, hopefully as you walked in. If you didn't, there's some more in the back. This is yours to keep for seven weeks. So when you come to church, bring it with you. Um, Take notes in it. You can take notes about the sermon, but more than that, take notes about what you're thinking and feeling as we study these stories. Take notes about what the Holy Spirit is, 
is speaking to you right now as we're, we're opening the word. And then also in there each week, there's reflection questions. You can go home, reflect on those. Get real honest in this. It's really a waste of time if you're just going to give some, you know, churchy, correct answer that you're, that you're not turning this in. Get, get honest. And there's further reading in here for you to reflect on as well. Take it to your growth group. Reflect with them. Share what God is doing. Find a group of friends and go have coffee every week and talk about some of these questions. If we don't do this, we'll forget. If we don't do this, we'll forget. By the time we wake up from our Sunday afternoon naps, we'll forget what God is doing. So use this to chronicle his redemption in your life right now. This isn't just about a study of something that happened way, way long ago. So what is our focus then? Our focus as we dive into these seven weeks will be redemption. Redemption is a big, fat, churched-up word that we say a lot but rarely understand. And when I say redemption, I'm sure something is probably coming to your mind. Maybe just you're getting a blank screen. You're getting, like, fuzzy. But for some of you, what, is com- what comes to mind when you hear redemption? Maybe salvation? Maybe coupons? Re- uh, maybe recycling? right? Redemption value, all that kind of stuff. For me, see, I, growing up, I played baseball from about the age of five to 18. And from the age of five to 18, I struck out a lot. And inevitably, when I'd go up to bat after striking out, one of my encouraging teammates would encourage me with, come on, Mike, redeem yourself. So I have this messed up idea that redemption is something that I do for me. It's me working hard enough to turn my life around. It's me standing up at the plate like, okay, got to redeem myself. Got to hit a single right now. Got to redeem myself. And when I think of a redemption story, what comes to mind for me is, you know, some poor kid that nobody believes in with a drugged out mom, no dad, that works hard, goes to Harvard, and becomes the president of the United States. Like, that's, that's a redemption story. But... When we look into the Bible relating to redemption, the Bible doesn't hold that view. In fact, the person or thing in the Bible being redeemed is fairly passive in in that they're helpless. That's why they need redemption. Something or someone from outside needs to redeem them. You don't see a whole lot of bootstrap stories in the Bible of people turning their lives around or hitting a single after they strike out because they tried harder. Redemption is really about the person redeeming. So if redemption then isn't us-centered, if it's not about primarily what I do for me, what is it? We have to have some working understanding of redemption. And for us, these seven weeks, when we say redemption, we mean three things. One, redemption is deliverance. Redemption is ransom. And redemption is renewal. So what I've done for you, I've taken a big, fat, churched-up word like redemption and now defined it with three bigger, fatter, churched-up words like like, uh, deliverance, ransom, and renewal. But you know what these things mean. Redemption is deliverance in that it's, it's delivering freedom. It's taking someone out of slavery and bringing them into freedom. And redemption is ransom because that freedom is costly. Something has to be paid for that freedom. But redemption isn't just about freedom. It doesn't stop at freedom. If it was about just freedom, the book of Exodus would be 14 chapters long instead of 40. Because the Israelites were set free very early on in the story. 
And the rest of the chapters is God renewing them, teaching them how to live again, bringing them into his presence. Redemption is renewal. Yes, it's about freedom, but it's about renewal as well. And that's something that in our Exodus story today that God is up to. He's renewing us every day into the image of his son. He's going to renew creation back to God's original intent one day. Redemption has to be renewal for us. So we're going to dive in. We're going to open up to uh, Exodus chapter 1, right in the beginning. And as you're opening, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, so you don't got to go far. It's right after Genesis, then Exodus chapter 1. And as you're doing that, I'm going to pray. Love you, Jesus. We love your word. We love that you're with us, God. So thankful I'm not standing here talking about some dead guy who had good ideas once. So thankful you're here in this room. You're with us. Lead us, Holy Spirit, into what's true. I pray somehow, Lord, every word that, that comes from my mouth would be from you. We want you, Jesus. We want what you have for us. We pray this in your your mighty name. Amen. So we're going to kick this thing off where Exodus kicks it off. And Exodus starts with a problem, a big, fat problem. But the the, the trouble is we can't just get right into Exodus chapter 1 because Exodus is part 2 of a five-part series called Torah. It's it's the first five books of our Bible. And Exodus is number 2. So we got to understand a little bit of what happens in number one. You can't really appreciate Lord of the Rings until you, you, you see The Hobbit, right? Man, I just awakened all the Tolkien nerds are awake. Like, huh? Did he say Hobbit? God is here. So I'm a Tolkien nerd, so I, I can say that. So to The Hobbit we go. In the beginning... In the beginning, God made perfection. He made light. He made water. He made delicious food. He made, at the crown of creation, human beings. And the first people, Adam and Eve, enjoyed face-to-face communion with creator God. And he gave them a paradise to work and live in. And we know that didn't last long. Sin ransacked the place. We decided we'd rather be God than know God. And so Genesis continues to chronicle people filling up the earth and getting into all kinds of messes. And then we get to chapter 12 in the book of Exodus or Genesis, Genesis, Genesis. Don't lose me. I said Genesis. We get to chapter 12 in Genesis and we meet a guy named Abram, who's later called Abraham. And God covenants, promises with him and tells Abram that a great nation will come from him. Which at the time of this covenant, Abram was old. He had zero kids and a barren wife a perfect recipe to produce a great nation, right? This probably sounded like great news. Like, oh, wow. God told me that my ancestors are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's great news. And with this covenant, with this covenant promise, just almost in the same breath, God brings a sobering reality to this promise that he shares with Abram. In Genesis 15, the Lord tells him, no, no, Abram, Abram for certain, doesn't sound to me like it's like a coin flip. For certain that your offspring will be sojourners, aliens, wanderers in a land that's not their own and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. 
we've got to remember this. Abraham has no child, a barren wife, and God makes an audacious claim, writes a check that God really can only cash, and then connects this sobering reality of, and they're going to suffer, Abraham. They're going to suffer. So then miraculously, Abraham and his wife conceive. They have a baby named Isaac. Isaac goes on to have two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob's the youngest of the twins, and he buys the birthright from Esau and is folded into the covenant of Abraham. And so here we have the three main players of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Granddad, dad, son. And time and time again, you'll hear God refer to himself. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As if to say, I'm the God of the impossible. I am the God. I've made a promise and I'm keeping a promise with three dudes that had no shot and didn't belong. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is where it gets really interesting. Jacob has 12 sons. 12 sons with four women, two of which are his wives. His favorite wife, Rachel, can't have kids. And she's bitter about it. And then finally God gives her, she gives uh, Jacob two sons. And in fact, in, in the midst of childbirth of the second son, she dies. And when all this is going on, God meets with Jacob and renames him. And says, Jacob, you'll no longer be known as Jacob. You're going to be known as Israel. Israel. And his 12 sons will go on to father the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where we get that from. So Israel, Jacob had a favorite son that came from his favorite wife, and his name was Joseph. And he was born pretty, like at the end of, of uh, Jacob's life. And Jacob doted on him, gave him a really pretty coat, and loved him. And then, then Joseph starts having like crazy dreams about ruling over his brothers. And keep in mind, his brothers are like grown men at this time, working jobs. And punk 17-year-old little brother comes and shares with them, hey, God's told me I'm going to rule over you guys. Great news. You know, and they're like, who is this kid? He's got a fancy coat. Dad loves him. And I'm out here working. So the jealous brothers decide to get rid of him. They sell him into slavery and fake his death and tell his dad, their dad, that he's dead. So dad's favorite son is dead. Israel is a brokenhearted old man now without his favorite son. But he's not dead. He's sold to Egyptian slave traders, and he's sold to a really important Egyptian guy named Potiphar. And this, this phrase starts reoccurring in the Joseph story, that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. You keep hearing that. The Lord was with Joseph. He sold into slavery. The Lord was with Joseph. And Potiphar, he gains favor with his slave master. And Potiphar likes the guy, and he becomes like the top slave in charge of the whole house. And then Potiphar's wife is into Joseph because he's handsome and wants to sleep with him and he runs and then she lies and frames him. And so Potiphar, like any good husband would do, throws the dude in jail. And the Lord was with Joseph in jail, innocent. And then in jail, he rises to some importance. He's like the favorite prisoner and starts interpreting dreams for people in prison. And then Pharaoh, the most important guy in all of Egypt, the ruler, hears about this guy because Pharaoh's having dreams himself and needs interpretation. So in comes Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Slavery framed for, you know, sleeping with his boss's wife and all these kind of things. The Lord was with him and he gives some incredible wisdom to Pharaoh that saves the nation of Egypt for seven years, from seven years of famine. So Pharaoh's pretty stoked. So he takes this prisoner and makes him second in command over all of Egypt, which was probably the most prominent, 
powerful nation on earth at the time. And here's Joseph, sold into slavery, left for dead, basically. He's now ruling with Pharaoh, essentially. And the Lord was with Joseph. And then Genesis, so we're still in the book of Genesis, concludes with beautiful irony. Joseph's brothers travel to Egypt because they're hungry, because there's a famine in their land. And they come, and Joseph recognizes, recognizes them. They don't know it's him because he's a ruler in Egypt. And there's some really dramatic interactions. And finally, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And you can imagine how they're feeling. Like, okay, this guy's got the keys to the, the pantry, and we tried to kill him. So. And then Joseph does the unthinkable. He forgives him, forgives his brothers. I mean, knowing that God was working something good throughout all their evil. And so Israel, old brokenhearted man, comes with all his sons and they live in Egypt. And that's how Genesis concludes and brings us to part two, Exodus. And we get seven great verses in the book of Exodus. Things are going so hot for the Israelites. The Bible says that the Israelites are multiplying, they're growing, they're filling up the land. Life is good in Egypt for the Israelites because of Joseph. Pharaoh loved Joseph. He's like a national hero. And these are his brothers and his family, and they're just multiplying. Again, just seven good verses. And then right, almost right from the start, we get the problem. The problem is a new king takes place. Joseph's dead and gone now. And this king, this Pharaoh comes into power. He doesn't know about this guy, Joseph. And he sees all these Israelites and thinks, wow, what a workforce this could be. And he makes them slaves, just like that. They're slaves. And verse 12 in chapter 1 of Exodus says, the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread throughout Egypt. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They were really afraid of these guys because they were slaves and they were trying to oppress them and they wouldn't go away. So Pharaoh goes a step further and enacts a law that every male baby born to a Hebrew woman, an Israelite woman, will be killed on the spot. He's trying to genocide these people. He wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. Just try Try to imagine, try to step into what a a living hell that must have been. Egypt was great. It was good. It's the place that you worked. It's your hometown. And then overnight, you're made a slave. And you're given a terrible job of making bricks for Pharaoh, essentially building the kingdom that hates you. And it's terrible work. It's the kind of work that you go home at the end of the day, and you're like, I don't even know if I should take a shower because i got to go back in a few hours anyway. It was brutal work. The Egyptians, the Bible says, were ruthless. Your neighbors, your friends at one time now are ruthless towards you. And to make matters worse, you go home at the end of a long day, no pay, people beating you up, reviling you. You go home only to watch an Egyptian throw your newborn son in the river to drown. We read about this stuff and it says all the male babies were killed. And we can just keep reading. But those were sons. Those weren't just male babies. Those were sons. I mean, imagine a Hebrew woman pregnant for nine months crying out, God, let this be a girl this time. Let it be a girl. And then you go through labor. And you bring a baby into the world, and it's a boy. And they kill him right in front of you. Can you, can you feel the anger? Can you, can you feel it? Can you feel the hopelessness? Can you hear them crying, God, where in this hell are you? 
This used to be home. This used to be good, and now look at it. I'm a slave, and I'm a slave, and my kids are getting tossed in the river to die. It's really hard for us, I think, to relate to such misery. There probably aren't many of us here that are going through something like that. But to be human, to some degree, means you'll suffer. Maybe you have suffered in the past. Maybe you are suffering, or maybe you will suffer. Either way, to go through life is to suffer to some extent. And for the Israelites, there was no silver lining. Absolute misery. The core of suffering, guys, is when things aren't right. When things aren't the way they should be, we suffer. Maybe as Bob was talking, you're hearing these stories and something in you is just like, that's that's not right. We suffer when things are not as God intended them to be. And I read something this week that, that made me shudder and groan a little bit, knowing that things aren't right. I read that today, in America, in our nice nation, there are 39 million 39 million survivors of childhood sexual abuse today walking around. 39 million. 16% of boys, 25% of girls, one in every four girls before they're 18 in America will be sexually abused. Things are not right. More than 70%, 70% of men ages 18 to 34, that's a big group, 70% of those men will visit a pornographic site this month. Things are not right. One in five adults use an illicit drug every month. More than half, more than half of us in America have a close family, family member who has had or has alcoholism. That's a lot. That's a lot of us. And for the first time in our history, more babies are born to a single mom than to married parents every day. More babies. Things are not right. And we can look at these things. We can hear stats about, you know, the the sex trade and we can get kind of numb because they're really big numbers. But we're sitting next to each other, guys, and we're in these statistics. I had conversations this week that just blew my mind. People that I've known for a while, friends of mine, that, that, that told me that they were abused as kids, sexually abused as kids. They're one of those 39 million. I'm like, I've known you. And this is what you're walking through? This is, this is us, guys. We suffer. Things aren't right. To some degree, we're in bondage. We're in slavery. We, we can't help ourselves. Things are not right. I spent last week, part of last week, preparing for this message on suffering in uh, the happiest place on earth. We were down in LA for a wedding, so we decided let's stay for a couple of days and go to Disneyland. And it is really hard to think about suffering walking through Disneyland. I tried. But that is the closest thing to man-made perfection I've ever experienced. I mean, there's no trash, people are nice, uh, the flowers grow perfectly, <laughs> there's turkey legs that you can just eat off the bone while walking around. I mean, it's, per- it's bliss, it's perfection. 
And it, it dawned on me, we walked into the park on our second day at Disneyland, and there was this plaque uh, that I have a picture of right over the entrance as you walk in to Disneyland. And the plaque reads, let me see, you got it. Here you leave today and enter the world of yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. I mean, right there, it's just saying, escape, escape, escape. Did I, it just hit me. I was like, oh, that's what this is. It's a perfect escape. It's escape from real life. Disneyland is not real life. And I realized that as soon as I got in the car to drive home, heading north on I-5, heading into L.A., and just 20 minutes ago, I was in bliss, like enjoying, you know, nice people and no trash. And then I'm looking around. There's trash everywhere on the highway. There's abandoned buildings and tagging and humans driving cars. And I'm just like... And then to make things worse, they narrow that dang freeway down to like one or two lanes at one point. Like, I, I was so mad. I hated life. And I, I just, I realized, I was like, oh, this is why Jesus came. Like, he, Jesus didn't come for Disneyland. Life isn't Disneyland. If life was Disneyland, would we need somebody to redeem us and rescue us? No. I was looking at it. I was like, oh, this is real life. That's right. Disneyland's an escape. And I just was so struck that God came for the mess. He came for the mess. He's not scared by a mess. And we can see that in the book of Exodus. I want to read something. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen. But chapter 2 of Exodus, verse 23, shows us that God is not scared of the mess. Remember that mess the Israelites were sitting in. And it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came, rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And this is the most profound verse. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And then a little further, God goes into more detail in chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord speaks and says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I've seen it. They're in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them into a land that is good and broad. Can you believe that? Perfect, holy God knows They're in a living hell. Their worst nightmare is happening in front of their eyes. And God says, I know. I'm not off in the distance. I know. I'm coming down. He remembers his promise to Abraham. Right there in that moment. And not in the sense of like, I forgot it. Oh yeah, I made that promise to Abram. It remembers in the sense of he's ever committed to it. He hasn't stopped working it. He's been working his will through suffering. And when I read this, this does not appear to me to be a God who is caught off guard, surprised, or out of control when it comes to the suffering of the Israelites. When it comes to suffering. Remember, he told Abraham way back when, when he made the covenant with them, these pe- your peop- they're going to be a great nation, but they're going to suffer. For 400 years, they're going to suffer, Abraham. He knew it. He knows it. And somewhere in his infinitely wise and unsearchable mind and plan, he was working his will through suffering. 
He didn't protect them from suffering. And as we hear that, I hope that maybe some offense is coming up in your heart. If that doesn't offend you a little bit, maybe you're just a solid five-point Calvinist, or maybe you're not listening, but this offends me. This offends me. Those 400 years offend me. Because early when I started following Jesus, I was so drawn to his grace, like many of us. His kindness overwhelmed me. I couldn't get enough of his goodness. And without my really knowing it, I started developing a theology, a a way of viewing God that gave me no grid for pain and suffering. Pain and suffering was the devil's fault. The good things were God's fault. And every day was kind of a coin flip for me. It's kind of, all right, who's in charge today? I probably wouldn't have told you that back then, but looking back, I can see how my life worked through that, that grid. And that theology, it got confronted about five or six months into my marriage. Katie and I were living in Fresno. We were down in Visalia for the weekend. My brother was getting married on a Sunday. So we, uh, we slept at my parents' house like every you know, new husband wants to do. They want to take their bride to their parents' house and sleep in the room that mom decorated all weird. Um, so there we are sleeping. Sunday morning, my phone rings and my father-in-law, it's his number. So I pick it up. It's like 6 a.m. And I pick it up and it sounds like they're hysterically laughing. Like a bunch of people are having a party. I'm like, oh gosh, did they mess up and call me? I didn't want to wake up this early. And I keep listening. I'm trying to talk. And I, I realize that they're not laughing. They're actually wailing and crying. And I keep listening. And they say that my two-month-old nephew, Cade, stopped breathing. So, you know, I'm here. It's the day my brother's getting married. And I'm not, I was like, we got to go. So Katie and I wake up and we speed off to Selma, to the hospital. And we wait for this ambulance to roll up. To, to bring my dead nephew. And I held Cade. I held him, a dead two-month-old baby boy, and I was so pissed off. I didn't know who I was pissed off at. I didn't know to be mad at God or the devil, but I was so mad, so tore up. And then as that week went forward and all the funeral plans happened, I got more and more upset as I listened to my wife's family talk about God's plan and God's will. I just was like, don't blame this on God. He had nothing to do with this. Blame the devil. That was my understanding at the time. And then... I've seen fruit now come out of how they viewed that circumstance, that terrible circumstance that I hope none of us have to face. Because Cade's parents are still married today and they still love Jesus. I don't know if I could say the same thing if that happened to me. So I saw fruit come from people trusting God in the midst of suffering, not blaming him. It certainly wasn't easy, but they trusted him. So I came through that and I essentially had two views then of God and suffering. Either God is strong and all-powerful, all-sovereign, and when things go bad, he's a big jerk because he didn't stop it. 
Or I can, God is good and nice and kind and, uh, you know, doesn't really know what's going to happen. So he's my buddy in it and didn't have anything to do with it. It's the devil's fault. That was my two ways of viewing things. And I wasn't satisfied with either one. And I'm looking now in Exodus and particularly, particularly in Joseph's story right before Exodus. And I see a sovereign God and a good God. And he's the same God. It's not one or the other. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And I believe Joseph knew that, whether he was in prison or getting blamed for something he didn't do or rising to power in Egypt, he knew that the Lord was with him. And you don't see Joseph asking a lot of whys. Because our lifeline, guys, in the midst of suffering, our lifeline is just that, that Jesus is with you. That's your lifeline. That's what you hold on to, that Jesus is with you in it. He's not surprised by it, dumbfounded by it, or jerk in it. He's with you. Just like he tells the Israelites, I'm coming down. I know. That word know is intimate. It's not just like, oh, I have an intellectual knowledge of your suffering. No, it's I, I know it, guys. I understand it. And I believe that Jesus is God. Not partway God, not a version of God. I believe he is God who took on flesh and moved into our mess. And he lived a perfect life, perfectly submitted and surrendered to the Father's will. And he did everything the Father put in front of him to do. And if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus suffered. He did everything the Father put in front of him to do, and he suffered. Yeah, he suffered on the cross, but even before that, he suffered. He was born into scandal, ridiculed by his hometown. He was practically like a pain magnet. People that were suffering just found him. Blind guys, people that couldn't walk, a woman that can't stop bleeding. They find this guy. It's just like he attracted pain and suffering. He knows, guys. That's why Hebrews can tell us that we have a high priest, Jesus, who can sympathize with us. He knows. It's not just an intellectual knowledge of, yes, I can comprehend suffering. No, it's like, I felt it. I've been betrayed. I've been abandoned. I've been beaten for something I didn't do. I've suffered. He knows. And if I'm really honest, I have forgotten that God is with me. I have forgotten that Jesus' name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because right now in my life, I feel really stuck. I feel stuck in my marriage. I feel like we're having the same conversations every couple weeks, and I keep saying the same stupid thing, and nothing's changing. And yes, my wife said I could talk about this, so don't worry. (laughs) But we, f- we just feel stuck. We're looking at each other just like, what happened? We're just stuck. I feel stuck at my job. I, I don't know what I'm doing half the time or where I'm going. I-, I feel like I'm spinning my wheels dealing with the same stuff over and over again. And that is suffering, guys. I mean, that's some- you got to un- believe that the Israelites were feeling some of that. Just kind of like the big what for? What is this for? What's the point of this suffering? We're just spinning our wheels. We're stuck. We're stuck. 
And yet Joseph understood. He understood intimately that God was with him. He understood that Joseph, that God wasn't in Joseph's story. Joseph was in God's story. God wasn't a character on the stage of Joseph's life. No, Joseph was in God's story. And when we see that, we see that God is with us. God is purposing things and doing glorious things in our life, whether things are terrible or great. And we can understand that God is with us. And those why questions just start to seem not as important. And I'm realizing as I myself feel stuck right now, staring at things I've been staring at for way too long, I've forgotten that God is with me in it. He's with me as I feel stuck. I've been viewing him like off in the distance saying, come on, Mike, you're almost there. It'll get better. No, he, he's with me in it. And the better question for us isn't why. Why is this happening? Why am I going through this? Why did my kid die? Why do I have cancer again? Why am I divorced for the third time? That, the, those questions aren't the questions. Those are painful questions. But the more important question is who? Who is with me when my kid dies? Who's with me when I have cancer for the third time? Who is with me when I'm divorced and alone? Who is with me? That's the question that changes everything. That is a game changer. That was a game changer for Joseph, and that's what the whole story of Exodus is about. It's not about the what and the why, although that comes up and comes to play, but the whole story is who. Who is God and where is he? And the resounding answer from the Bible is he is with us. He has never left us and never will forsake us. And I've forgotten this. And when you forget something, what do you need to do? You need to remember. And today we're going to respond by remembering. As a church, we need to remember. Maybe you can relate to some form of suffering that's just real present in your life right now. And you're probably asking some really good why questions. But let's ask who. Let's remember and ask who. And we're going to remember in this meal. This is the meal that Jesus gave us. He said, do this to remember me. So you're going to get a chance to take communion. And, and we're going to worship and pray together as we do that. And in fact, Travis is going to, why don't you come up, Trav? And we're going to, um, you know, early in the life of the church, they fought a lot about what's called orthodoxy, right belief. Like the right things to believe about God was a really important thing to settle for them. And they came up with these things called creeds. Have you guys heard of these? Creeds. And in every one of those creeds, it talks about Jesus, which is important. You got to believe some right things about Jesus. And everyone says that he suffered. As if to say, God doesn't want us to forget. He doesn't want us to forget that when he came, he came all the way. And he stepped in and he suffered. As if to say, don't forget, I'm with you. I'm with you. And he's given us this meal today to remember. And we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared this meal with his followers. And he told them, this bread, let it remind you of my body that was torn for you, broken for you on the cross. And that cup, remember my blood that was poured out. Remember my redemption. Every time you eat this meal, 
And I'm so thankful because we're going to get to take physical bread and dip it in physical juice as if to remind ourselves that God is as close to us as those things that we're putting in our mouth. He's in us. He's with us. He's not far from us. That's what we remember today. That's why we take communion. We're not remembering somberly some dead guy that went away. As we take communion, we remember a victory that was secured for you and for me that no suffering and no pain can snuff out. Because Jesus on the cross suffered something that if you believe in him, you'll never have to suffer. He suffered a separation from God, his father. He cried out on that cross, God, God, why have you forsaken me? And praise Jesus that we will never have to utter those words and have them be true. Because we will never suffer apart from God. We will never suffer apart from him knowing intimately what we're up against. We'll never suffer apart from Jesus. Jesus' followers went on from there and most of them were killed. Most, Most of them were tortured. Some were crucified like him. But none of them suffered apart from Jesus. None of them suffered suffered separation from him. And that's what we remember today. Because we've forgotten. I don't have to remind you of the suffering or pain or the feeling of being stuck that you got right now. I don't got to remind you of that. But let's remember how near God is with us in it. Let's celebrate him. So I'm going to pray. I want you to just to reflect. I want you to try to connect with maybe where you're feeling stuck, maybe where you're experiencing some suffering, some pain in your life. And get real with it. Don't gloss it over. Don't pretend it's not there. But I want to invite God into it. I want us to remember that God is with us. So even as I'm praying, if you have to say to yourself, maybe out loud, God, you're with me. You're with me. You're with me. And we do invite you, Jesus, into this. Lord, we invite you into this meal. God, that your presence would be manifest here. That we would know you are with us and you haven't left us for dead. God, let us remember here as we take hold of this bread that you've taken hold of us, God, and you will never let go. My hope, guys, I I think a lot of us would walk in here saying, yeah, I believe that God's with me. Intellectually, I believe that. I want us, I'm hoping that God can take that from a good theology that we have to an experience that we have. An experience that, oh God, you're with me. I can, your grace, I can feel it on me. You're close. You're closer than this breath that I'm breathing in and out. You're near. God, would you take this from a good theology to a real encounter with you? So, you're going to come. You're going to take the bread, the juice. You're going to thank God for being near to you. You're going to remember how close he came and how close he is. And there's going to be people up here that want to pray with you if you need to, to pray with someone. They're, they won't counsel you, tell you it's all going to be better. They'll pray with you because Jesus is your lifeline in it, right? So if you're going to serve, if you're one of the people serving communion, can you come up? 
as well as those people who are uh, going to pray for others. If you're on that prayer team, come up as well. And we're going to get things set for us. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time. find Oh, I love the flowers and trees and the smell of the grinding sea and all the beautiful things here in life I